Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together out loud, chapter by chapter. We have moved on to a new book, uh, and we're going to see in a lot of ways that it, it is like a new book. There is really something different about what's happened here. Um, but on the other hand, the story is really just kind of continuing uh, where it left off. And so we are still right there where we were last time in the last chapter of First Samuel with the death of Saul. The tricky thing is, and we mentioned this actually yesterday, um, it seems like there's a different story being told about how Saul died. Um, so who actually killed Saul? Was it this uh, Amalekite or a Egyptian uh, son of an Amalekite, right, who shows up today with David? Um, was it his uh, armor bearer back up on, Gib uh, on the, not, not Gibeah, but um, Gilboa? So, I mean, this is, a, this is a question, and people have tried to put this together different ways, and, well, I've got some of my own ideas, and we'll see what our guest has to say today. Our guest, Pastor Stephen Tice from Frona, Missouri, joining us. Good morning, brother. Good to have you on. And, uh, yeah, this is, this is one of these little, little puzzles, and it really kind of changes the way you, you read the whole chapter, like what kind of message you, you kind of take away from it, I think. Yeah, there's there's a, a blend of, of a couple of events, and I will say will I think be able to shed some pretty good light on that based on two words. One is anointed, and the other one is sojourner or alien. So we're gonna be able to pick up on those two themes here. Well, and I, I appreciate um, especially you mentioning the second one too because it's just such a foreign concept to us. <laughs> Um, it's just the, the whole idea of like sojourners, um, you know, and like what, what exactly does that entail? It's not a word that we use anymore, right? Um, but, but yeah, I, I think you're right that when we kind of appreciate some of those sorts of details in this context, it, it can actually uh, really help some pieces fall into place. But uh, yeah, so lots, lots of good stuff here, like this opening chapter, beginning a new uh, phase in the saga of... Uh, of like the kingdoms of, of Israel and Judah. Right. And, and uh, you really see here, David takes a new turn as well. Uh, but without putting the cart before the horse, uh, brother, would you open us up with a word of prayer? Absolutely. Be happy to do so. Let us pray in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, gracious God, you indeed raise up your servants at the time you intend them to work for and with your people. When we hear your call, bless us with the gift of faith by your Holy Spirit to do that which we are called to do. As we study your word today, we ask your guidance and direction that we might learn from this account in the life of David how it is we are called to respond to tragedy and calamity in our own lives and also how you will continue to bless those who are your chosen ones, called in faith by the gift of Spirit. We also ask your healing and blessing on those who are ill, especially COVID patients. Many of us know individuals suffering from this infection. Many times it's someone within our own family, within our own congregation. We ask your healing hand and your recovery for these, your people, as you intended. Hear the call, your servants. Grant our requests for the sake of our Savior, Jesus the one who is indeed the true king of Israel, the king of your people now and forever. And in his name, we come before you, confident you hear us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. And, uh, yeah, and I, I appreciate also just the timely prayer for uh, just everyone who is who is sick and struggling with this. Um, you know, I, I think that we've, uh, we've said it before, but the, uh, the uncertainty of our times really – finds a resonance with David here because he's living in some pretty uncertain times. I, I think it would be fair to say, right? Absolutely. Clearly uncertain for him, the future. And, you know, we, we hear in today's reading, we hear about the announcement and the arrival of the news. And then in second Samuel coming week uh, and, and a half, you're going to be reading about David now becoming King. And it's not as smooth a transition as one might hope. So <laughs> yeah, to, to, to say the least. Um, well, uh, any anything that we should be recalling from the context here 
Um, I mean, just immediately in the first verse, we, we have David returning from striking down the Amalekites. You remember how he returned to Ziklag and yes. everything was burned. Um, so it's picking up the story there. What else do we need to be keeping in mind from the chapters we've read previously in 1 Samuel? Well, the, I think one of the key thoughts in that section about him going and catching the people who have stolen the, the family members and the, and the, I'll call it the loot, the booty, when he comes back, he divides it up both with those who stay and guard the baggage as well as those who have gone out to fight, and this becomes a new standard in Israel. So David sets right. precedent and establishes God's rule that those who serve by standing at home are just as much God's people in warfare as those who go out to fight. Um, and the other right. thing is that he does not keep anything for himself that mm-hmm. was not his to start with. He returns it to those who lost it before uh, the, the uh, Amalekites and, and the, the enemy had carried it off. Now he brings it back and gives it back to them, even though they weren't from the city where he and his troops had been living. So the Lord restores through David to all those who have lost in Israel. So he's functioning as the Lord's anointed, denying himself and giving to others that which God had already granted them. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest uh, themes that you just see here, that, that David is, is very much acting as the Messiah. Even if he's not recognized as such, he's still acting and doing the work of being the Messiah, which which is, a uh, yeah, I think we said it when we were looking at this uh, a couple times ago, maybe with uh, chapter, I think it was, like, was 30, maybe, um, mm-hmm. just how really you see that as a, as a prefigurement of Christ our Lord, how he, he wasn't given the, the recognition of Messiah. He didn't have the, the palace or the army or any of the rest of it, but that didn't stop him from doing the work of the Messiah. So uh, it's certainly a big theme, mm-hmm. big motif you see. And uh, and just the idea of kind of righting wrongs, you're going to see that here in this chapter, especially then with this uh, carrying out of judgment. And so we'll have to talk about that um, and, and how that kind of actually in a way too uh, ties into all this uh, typology with the Lord Jesus. But let's go ahead and read the chapter, uh, get the ball rolling here. So this is Second Samuel now, chapter 1 from the top. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he had come to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I'm a Malachite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life lingers still. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he'd fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. And David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because he had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, 
and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Yeah, this is a very strong lament. It's, it's intended to be a song. It's written in a poetry form. And he said yeah. the people of, of Israel, of Judah specifically, should be taught this song. Therefore, it's right. recorded for exactly as it was learned by the people. Um, I think we, we often overlook this, that there are recorded uh, laments, psalms of praise, etc., outside of the book of Psalms, and those were collected in various books. The people of Israel had a culture that repeated its history orally so that succeeding generations would learn it. And I'm remembering as a child in school, there were certain songs or poems that were recited and and taught to me about the history of our country. Now, those weren't always completely accurate, but they were meant to teach a a, a (laughs) reverence for the attitude, if not, you know, all the exact historic details of those who preceded us. And you'll notice David's song or lament here that is to be taught to all people is a song of sorrow at God's anointed one, the mighty having fallen. And and although others may not have picked it up in this particular song, uh, clearly he, he is pointing out that Saul had fallen out of God's favor before he fell in battle. And, and part of this account is first you learn the public lament, and then you may learn later on that God had given instructions to Saul through the prophet Samuel, and Saul disobeyed. And in his failure to repent, instead insisting that his way was better than God's way, Saul has fallen not just in this battle where he's killed, he'd also fallen in the pride he felt in his own plan as opposed to God's will. And and looking at these thoughts, you know, for myself as well, um, you know, as we think about the the idea I have and the plan I think is the best one, do I go and ask God right. first? Do I seek God's counsel or do I just come up with my own plan and say, yeah, it's a good one. I like it. Let's go with it. Yeah. But, but yeah, I know. That's... Deep... Just say yeah. The, the deep level of impact in a culture that's not exactly like ours. We don't have these public songs of lament generally used in, in most of the United States, but in, in the Middle Eastern culture, that's still very common practice to have a I'm going to use the word open public display of the sorrow that occurs in the death of uh, a loved one or even a political leader. There's a, a what I will call a group identity that, to a certain extent yeah. in the United States, actually squelched. So, uh, yeah, no, th- those are sort of I, bad. I'm saying it's real. Yeah, right, right. No, that that's helpful because it real. I mean, uh, and it's something, right? That you know the, the, how the mighty have fallen. I mean, th- this uh, this lament, right? Even if we uh, don't use laments really very much um, in our context, as you were saying, 
the, the phrase, how the mighty have fallen, is something that probably a lot of our listeners will hear and say, hey, that sounds familiar. Uh, the thing yeah. is, uh, very ironically, right, we, we use it as a sarcastic uh, way of chiding people, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, so someone someone kind of gets their comeuppance, right? And we say, oh, how the mighty have fallen, you know, and, and we say that as a way of kind of like almost like a little dig, like, hey, not so big and tall are we now, right? You know, like, and uh, so, so we, we use it as a little, as a little bar, but, but, you know, when David uses it here, it's uh, far from that. He uses that phrase three times. He refers <laughs> to uh, David and Jonathan as stronger than lions, swifter than eagles, weapons of war, right? Like the weapons uh, that I think that's, that's to say God's weapons of war. Right. Um, so, so it's a, it, it's, it's not at all sarcastic. It's not at all like, Oh yeah, Saul got what he deserved. Um, it's, it's uh, just a, a heartfelt lamentation over, um, I mean, like, just like I said, like uh, two people, two, two instruments of God that God used to bless him and the people of Israel time and time again. Yes, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, there's some very graphic description here that tends to be almost avoided in our current culture. But in verse 22 in particular, there's a description of the bow of Jonathan turned not back. And we know that Jonathan used his bow to communicate with David earlier. And, of course, the sword of yeah. Saul again and again to attack the enemy. But then he had spared Saul from this. But even this phrase, from the blood of the slain and then from the fat of the mighty, which is kind of a, an interesting way of saying they cut through the muscle tissue into the sub layers of the enemy. I mean, there's, this is a graphic description of, of war yeah. and slaughter. And yeah. we away from that a lot in our culture. And, and uh, you know, for little children, you certainly don't want to present this image. On the other hand, when the Philistines came into a town, they often would kill the women, children, uh, old men that weren't fighting. So these images are not just rhetorical. These are recalling for the people of Judah who had learned this lament that God had enacted punishment on those who opposed God's people in a, in a legitimate use of power and authority. The, the bow of Jonathan and the sword of Saul were God's weapons as you indicated earlier, and God had used them again and again to turn back the people, uh, the enemies of God's people. And as, you know, going all the way back to um, Samuel and God's message to Samuel when the people wanted a king, what we see here is also pointing ahead to when the mighty will fall in battle when Christ is slain with the battle of against death and sin, and yet he didn't fall on his sword. He gave up his life. There's a direct contrast in the Messiah to come with the anointed of the Lord Saul. Saul is afraid, and that's kind of repeated in you know the words of the, the Amalekite uh, who comes in and talks to David. Saul was afraid of what might happen if he falls into the hands of the enemy and get to the end of yeah. it. Second Samuel and, and David's statement is, don't let me fall into the hands of the enemy. I, I put my trust in God to bring the appropriate punishment. And, you know, if you do the bookends of the beginning of Second Samuel and the end of Second Samuel, both of them involve a king who has the choice of trusting God or, or trying to do it his own way. And, you know, David repents. Saul doesn't. Saul tries to do his own way, even to the point of taking his own life. David repents and says, I put myself and the people in God's hands for punishment. So there's this context matters, and and content gets richer when we have the broad picture of this reign of the kings of Israel or Judah and the understanding that this whole idea is that they are really, I mentioned this before, we've talked about this, they are really the prince regents until the kingdom of God can be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. That's right. That's right. They, they stand for something greater than what any one of them individually can ever hope to accomplish. Um, and, and in that respect, 
um, they're certainly worthy of respect. And, and David, it doesn't matter how many times that Saul's thrown a spear at him. Um, he's the Lord's anointed, and he's going to yep. honor that. And he's going to, I mean, you know, we've talked before about, too, like, you know, how is it that hundreds of years later, you know, someone's going to say, like, oh, I should name my son Saul, right? Um, it, yeah. You know, when, when, when Saul was a bad, terrible king. Well, that's not how he was remembered. And, and part of the reason why he wasn't remembered that way is because of David, <laughs> because David himself said, hey, this is how we should remember Saul. And, and, he, and with this lament, right, remembering the good things mm-hmm. that God did through him. So, I mean, it really is something, and it's uh, really just kind of underscoring the point you were just making that, you know, what you're supposed to see in the kings, like you're supposed to kind of look past the the imperfections um, and the flaws and look for that, you know, that picture, that tapestry of Christ that they're that representing. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe towards the end we can kind of go back to maybe a couple details of the lament, Um I think that we kind of already talked about some of the big points, but I want to go back to the beginning though, because you were starting to mention this yep. too, um, this, this Amalekite that, that shows up and, and this has happened a couple times now. Um, in fact, I think I was starting to get some of the details even fuzzy here, but we we recall that back um, in chapter or where was it? It was, it was a few chapters ago. I want to say it was back in chapter 30, that David encounters this guy who describes himself as the uh, as an Egyptian, the the yeah. son of an Amalekite, right? Or, or or I guess the servant to an Amalekite, right? Um, and and uh, here, right, you get this guy who shows up and he says, "Well, I mean, it's <laughs> it's kind of a little bit confusing." Even he tells, I guess, Saul, "I'm an Amalekite," um, and then he tells. David, like, well, a little bit more detail, right? When, when mm-hmm. David asks the question, he's like, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite, right? So, okay, who is this guy? Is there any connection to the guy from before? And then also, like, hang on a second, we thought that Saul's armor bearer, bearer killed him. So those are all questions we've got to figure out, but it's time for our break already. Yeah. But hold on, we'll, we'll address those questions when we get back. We're looking at Second Samuel, chapter one on Nice Strong Word, and we'll be right back. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. We equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more about classical Lutheran education at Faith Plano, visit flsplano.org. That's flsplano.org. One church has stained glass windows, statues, and other images. Another church has no images at all. What does the first confess that the second doesn't? Thursday on Issues Etc., we'll conclude our series, Things We See in Church, with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. Music lets people who speak different languages do something together, sing. In that way, it is both a welcoming and a unifying force. Good music doing good work. That's what you'll hear on the next Sing for Joy. Be part of it. Sundays at noon on KFUO, the messenger of good news. Welcome back, everybody, to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor H.A. Espinosa. We're looking at 2 Samuel now, chapter 1, talking about uh, the I mean, beautiful and powerful lament of David over Saul and Jonathan, how the mighty have fallen, not at all used in an ironic way. Um, but we're going back here now to the first part of the chapter, trying to get our heads around, okay, 
who is the guy? Who is the bearer of bad news? Hang on a second. Weren't we not supposed to shoot the messenger? So we're trying to figure out who this Amalekite guy is and trying to line this up with what we just read in First Samuel chapter 31. If you've got a question or a comment for us, please do give us a call. If you're listening live, 1-800-730-2727. Or if you're in St. Louis, 314-821-0850. You can also send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Or you can hop on the live stream. Uh, well, normally you'd be able to. <laughs> but you can also, just for right now, because of some technical problems, just at least post the questions there. Uh, we have a couple comments anyway, facebook.com slash H.A. Espinosa. Uh, the questions today, uh, you know, so this is uh, the Amalekites seem to keep showing up, <laughs> right? So, like, is there is there something going on that, that we keep, you know, having the Amalekites mentioned like three chapters uh, in a row here. Um, and then the other question being, what do we do with David's line uh, that <laughs> Jonathan's love was extraordinary and surpasses the love of women? Yeah, that's that's one that people have said all kinds of craziness about. We're going to definitely have to come back to that at the end. I, I want to talk about this Amalekite business here, though. Uh, before we ask our guests to help try to piece this together, I want to make sure to thank our underwriters of the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Thank you guys for your support of Thy Strong Word, their website, lhfmissions.org. So, yes, our guest here, Pastor Stephen Tice from Frona, Missouri. Brother, what are you making of this? Because, I mean, this is a, I mean, this is just so interesting. First of all, I, I, just, I just find it to be kind of a little bit weird that in Second Samuel, all by itself, right, chapter 1, um, mm -hmm. the, the guy in telling his story, right? Like he, he says that he told Saul that he was an Amalekite, right? Um, and right. then David's like, well, now hang on a second. Where are you from? Right. And, and it's sort of like, well, now hang on. Why would David even ask this question? Was, was he not listening? Uh, I guess maybe he's really, you know, he, he's like lamenting. Maybe he forgot. And he's like, hang on, where, where are you from again? Right. But then he kind of mm -hmm. adds this little detail here, son of a sojourner in Amalekite. You mentioned that this, this sojourner detail could be important to helping us piece this together. What do you think? Yeah, it would, it would be highly probable that when the Israelites entered the land of Cana, there were those who had traveled with them from Egypt who were not Israelites. And they also had some of the people in neighboring areas who the Israelites did not kill as God had commanded. And the Amalekites kind of came from, to use a generic term, the southwest end of the Negev is where they would have come yeah. from. But if they could have attached themselves as the Philistines were being fought by the, Is the Israelites, they could have said, okay, the Israelites are better than the Philistines. Let's go hang out with them. But again, right. it's, it's a group of people who are not Israelites, these um, sojourners, and they attach themselves to the Israelites, sometimes because they see the true God there. And, and so they are treated as, resident aliens and and god's instruction through moses are very explicit god says this law applies to you and to the the visitor in your household and to the the sojourner who stays with you you'll observe the passover and the sojourner has the same rules you do they don't have to be israelite right. they're living by control and and so right. this could be a person who had been part of saul's military unit believe it or not and i'm not saying he was but he could have been and not have violated the concept of of fighting with the Israelites without being an Israelite. Um, so these these people existed. You know, the book of Joshua, you find the, 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 the deception of those who come with dry and moldy bread and worn out shoes and say we've traveled a long distance and end up actually being from just down the street. Um, right. So there were those who tried to avoid destruction by submitting to the Israelites. And this man could be part of that group. I'm not saying he is, but he could be. And, and God's instruction were clear. The Amalekite, as a sojourner, has a legal status in Israel. It's a yeah. protected legal under the law of Moses. So his claim to be a sojourner immediately says, I adhere to the laws of this land, even though I'm not descended from one of the Israelite tribes. So that puts him in the category. And the thing I noticed also is we're told that when yeah. he appears— from Saul's camp, his clothes were torn. He had dirt on his head. These are yeah, the yeah. That's, that's an evident statement that says, I am mourning something terrible. 
And so David says, okay, you're dressed in morning lament format. Where did you come from? Yeah. And, and that's the story of why are you acting this way? You're already showing public, uh, public mourning, public despair at something evil. And then he says, I came from the camp of Saul. And David uh, says, okay, how is it there? And he says, Saul's dead. Um, Jonathan is dead. Yeah, that's right. Now, does Jonathan is a close friend of David if he's been around for any length of time? Yes, he does. You know, if he's if he's a long-term uh, participant in any of Saul's military endeavors, they've been hunting David for months or years at least, uh, months for sure. So his his response is, I know who Jonathan is. I know who Saul is. I saw them both dead. And then the question yeah. of how did death occur? I think. Well, yeah, there, <laughs> yeah. That, that's the next thing. Um, well, well, if, if we can just pause for just one second, because I, I do want to come to that, because I think there's a lot that sure. we need to pay, uh, take a look at. But I really appreciate the details you, you just brought out. Um, one, right, like I don't think that we read this as this guy shows up and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, Saul, I mean, I'm, I'm a foreigner. I don't care. Uh, yeah, I put the guy out of his misery. It's not flippant, right? Like, just like you said, like you, you see mm-hmm. um, the clothes, clothes torn, dirt on, dirt on his head. I, I think that the, I mean, we could read that description, right? Like kind of not knowing the culture saying like, oh, like he, well, he was in battle, right? So of course he's like dirty and messed up, right? But um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just the way that it talks about what, how David responds with tearing the clothes, right? Like the point is that like he's in right. mourning. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and the, uh, then, then to what, what follows up on that, right? Like that's actually then what prompts David to say, where do you come from? And this is actually where the ESV's translation is not super helpful here, uh, because it translates the question the same way in verse three, as it does, uh, later in verse 13, where do you come from? Right. But they're different mm-hmm. questions in Hebrew, right? The first one's, Hey, yeah. where did you come from? <laughs> like, like just now, like I see you've got all this stuff on, like what, what, just like you were saying, like what terrible thing of mourning did you just come from? Like, did you come from? Uh, and the second one, right. it's a different question. It's like, Hey, who are you? Like, you know, where do you and your family come from? Like categorically, right? Like what's your background? Different question, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, the first comment, or question, as you as you point out, is is really the from where do you come? You know, what from what location have you just arrived? Yeah, and it's right. the camp of Saul. And so that statement, I have escaped from the camp of Saul, or I have fled from the camp of Saul, but literally says he escaped, which means he was part of the combatant group on Saul's side to escape. Yeah, no, I think literally. I think so. I, I think so cuz we re- we read that, right? That like they were fleeing, right, from the Philistines. Everyone everyone was just running away trying to get away from the yeah. Philistine onslaught. And it's just like you mm-hmm. were saying, I think this was really helpful the way you're breaking this down as a sojourner, whether it's a, a sojourner or a, a son of a sojourner. I mean, there's really no material difference in in this culture, right? Um mm-hmm. as a sojourner, he has this protected status and he participates as if he were an Israelite, right? So there, there is no yeah. like, um, there's no like, oh well, he doesn't care. No, I mean, he, he's he's basically just, I mean, I mean, he's an, he's an immigrant, but but he's you know effect, effectively living as one of God's people, um, which then I think kind of uh, maybe this gets to the, the question that's that was on Facebook then. So okay, so okay, let, let's just say. He, he really is like even a part of the army. Maybe he really, you know, he is uh, Saul's, you know, one of the squires that was assigned to that situation. And so we can legitimately say, as we did in the previous chapter, you could legitimately refer to him as one of Saul's uh, armor bearers. Right. Like, so, OK, right. like th- that, that can that can make sense. But why is this Amalekite detail coming up, though? Why do we? Why do we keep, I mean, isn't it just fascinating that, like, back, like I was saying uh, in chapter 30, right, like when David finds this other guy in the open country, he says he's a servant of Egypt, but he's uh, a young man of Egypt, right? But he says he's a servant mm-hmm. to an Amalekite, right? I mean, so it's like, why, why right. does everyone have these Amalekite connections? Yeah, well, they are, they are again, they lived in the, the territory, bluntly, between Egypt 
Philistines in uh, Philistia, I guess we would call that, and and Israel. They were they were in that strip of land that conjoined all three of those particular places. They constantly would be interacting, and some of them would be enemies and allies, enemies of Israel and allies of the Philistines. Others would be allies of the Egyptians, and this you know the man out in the desert was an Egyptian. Right. But the Amalekites, as a general rule, are a people who are. I'm going to use a, a, a somewhat pejorative term here. Uh, opportunists. They are not. They are not seeking the will of God. They are seeking their own benefit, and they regularly oppress the Israelites. So, they, do, do you think though? Do you think though that mentioning that? So, so I mean, uh, I, I think that this is kind of setting the stage of how yes, like it, it really is. It, it is very probable that if you're wandering around the Negev. You're going to run into Amalekites. I mean, it's where they live, yeah. right? So I mean, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. But we have the detail keep getting mentioned by the narrator, right? I mean, like the narrator doesn't have to mention these details. Like, what? Like, do you think that there's something going on about why it's? Is there a significance to this Amalekite connection that comes up again and again? Like well, theologically, it's, perhaps. It's, well, yeah. The 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 uh, Gentiles are involved in the story. They're always involved in the story. In fact, this yeah. coming Sunday on our church calendar, we're observing uh, St. Luke's Day. And, you know, one of the things that, that yeah. Paul points out is he, is he is a chosen apostle of Christ to the Gentiles, nations, pantata ethne, you know, as, as we hear it in, in Matthew 28, but also in in First Thessalonians, or First, uh, yeah, First Thessalonians. Sorry about that. Uh, but looking at this whole understanding that God is at work in all the nations at one time, and He is already including the outside people in His history. So the story of salvation, the family of David, the reign of David, includes uh, His wife Abigail, for instance, mentioned in in the, the previous chapters. You know, she mm-hmm. is not an Israelite, and yet she is part of the people now. So, and of course, his, his great-grandmother, Ruth, the, the whole understanding that God's people interact with the world around them constantly, as do we. And we need to keep focused on the fact that the gospel is for all people. And the king who God appoints is to rule so that all people benefit, not just one nation. And as dumb as that might sound, looking at the fact that he's the king of, of Israel, God uses his kings to bless the neighboring nations as yeah. well. So, there's, well there's, absolutely. Uh, I think, I think in the, uh, yeah, I, I think, think that that's just, uh, that's spot on. Like that's, that's the big picture, right? This, uh, the, the gospel inclusion, which is, which is fascinating. We actually didn't talk about this last time, but the word that's used um, in first Samuel chapter 31 is evangelizing. The Philistines literally are going around evangelizing, evangelizing what? evangelizing that Saul is dead and here's his head on a spike. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that, re- and that really goes and shows you kind of like what, what the kind of original cultural idea behind evangel and evangelize meant. It, it was not mm-hmm. here guys, like, you know, have we got a special and exciting offer for you? Right. Like, and, and it's like a, like a pitch, like, like, let me tell you about something that you're going to be really interested in. Um, that you know, mm-hmm. hey, this is like uh, this is good stuff. You're gonna want in, want in, in on this. Get in on the ground floor, right? It, it's not a pitch. It's uh, rather, on the other hand, evangelizing is is going around and announcing. I mean, victory, <laughs> uh, yeah. dominion, mm-hmm. authority, power. It's saying like, hey, we. I mean, like we won. We're in charge, right? Not Saul. I, I, in that context, yeah. right? Um, and in the yeah. context of the Lord Jesus, in, in the context of John the Baptist, right, they're going around saying, hey, look, uh, God's in charge, not the Romans. I, I mean, I mean, ultimately, right? Like, you, you mm-hmm. think that maybe yeah. we're, we're, we're subjected and like, oh, our, our whole national identity has been destroyed by the Romans and we're, we're not a people anymore. But, but no, the Romans are on a whole much lower level, right? Like God's reign totally surpasses that. So, I mean, it, it's really like this victory announcement, um, this uh, triumph announcement. And so uh, here in, in the song, right, that he sings the lament, where he says, don't tell it in Gath. 
publish it not right. in the streets of Ashkelon, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I, I mean, he, it is a kind of uh, anti-Philistine gospel <laughs> men, uh, message, yeah. if I can put it if I can put it that way. And then to your point, right? Um, it's really favoring then God's gospel message, which is not the message of "Hey, I wiped out all the bad guys, so now my people in the corner are good." But just like you were saying in the big picture, like like the uh, Amalekite in chapter thirty, right? Who helps David mm-hmm. and David, who, right. whom David spares, right? God, God's evangel is a kind of victory that brings people in. Yeah, it's the inclusive part of of the exclusive gospel. It includes yeah, all that's people right. through the victor Jesus Christ. Yeah. And and as as we look again at, at this whole idea of the true king. Uh, the true king right. is God, and the promise is that in God our victory is secure. And just looking briefly again at, at this young man who comes and says, Saul said to me, my whole life is still in me. Um, as he's leaning, he says, leaning on his spear. And maybe at this point in time, you know, Saul fell on his sword and isn't dead yet. And he's propped up against it. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. And oh, that's interesting. That as, as you look at the story, he says he was leaning on his spear. Well, why is he leaning on his spear? Uh-huh. Because he stabbed him, didn't die. And now he's saying, okay, how can I escape from the Philistines? And so he asks this man who is there to actually uh-huh. kill him. And, and he says, you know, Saul, when, when Saul's armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his own, own sword. This young man doesn't say anything about the armor bearer. Um, so was he perhaps part of that group there, or was he one of the soldiers that, you know, in the, the close guard happened to come up on top of the hill and see what was going on? And yeah. thinking he was the orders of the king, actually killed him. The armor bearer, on the other hand, wouldn't do it. So we see a, a contrast here at the end of First Samuel in chapter 31. The armor bearer will not strike down the Lord's anointed. And clearly, David's statement about this young man is, did you not fear to kill the Lord's anointed? You knew who he was, and as an, uh, a sojourner in the, in the kingdom, he knew what this meant. And so yeah. David's statement, your own words have past sentence on you. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Well, and, and I think this is actually a really important detail about the interaction here between David and this sojourner, right? Um, when, because when David says this, uh, you know, it says, how are you not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? We recall, I mean, so I mean, there's really two details, I think, that are really very striking about what David says. The first is that, about the fear. Uh, because we read back in chapter 31, but his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly, right? So, so this, is, this is an interesting little moment here, right? Like in, in chapter uh, 31 here, uh, we, we hear mm-hmm. that the, 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 the squire or whoever he was, right, uh, was, a, was afraid to do this. Um, and here David's saying, hey, why weren't you afraid to do this? Okay, so that's like the first little bit. Um, and then the other thing, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you. I've killed the Lord's anointed. Um, mm-hmm. He's effectively saying, hey, you're responsible for your own death. Like like, like you just said, you, you, you yeah. signed your own mm-hmm. death warrant, right? Which sure. is pretty interesting because it actually does overlap the previous chapter where – yeah, I think we would say that the armor bearer was responsible for his own death, right? I mean, like, right. there it's narrated simply as he just falls on his sword. Um, but you can kind of see, actually, in Chapter 1, how this is an extended falling on his own sword. Uh, because right. because yeah. of his yeah. action, because of him using the sword this way, he effectively killed himself. So I, I, right. I take those two details, and, and I say to myself, Huh, combined with what you said about how a sojourning Amalekite really could be um, serving Saul, I think to myself, wow, okay, th- those are actually a lot of similarities. Is it possible we're overlooking something? And just without going into all the gory details, <laughs> gory details, um, back in mm-hmm. chapter 31, what, what, what struck me when I looked it over a second time, the description of how Saul died. Um, you know, he goes and he asks, um, you know, the young man, 
to draw his sword um, and run him through with it, um, you know, lest the uncircumcised come and, mm-hmm. and uh, mistreat me, right? And then it says, right, right but his armor bearer uh, would not, and I'm not not really sold on that translation at all because of the word order, the form of the verb. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's going to lead to this. It says, therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Does not say that in the Hebrew. It just says, therefore, Saul took the sword and fell upon it. So, I mean, now this is, you know, hey, I mean, you know, not everyone has to agree with this, but as I read it and I look at the word order and the way everything's structured here, I read this as yeah. he tells the guy, take out your sword and kill me. The guy takes out his sword, but he can't bring himself to finish the job. He hesitates. Saul grabs right. the sword that he's taken out, falls on it, and there he is. So now you look back. If that's what happened, who killed Saul? Well, it kind of depends on how you're looking at it, because you could say Saul killed himself, or you could mm-hmm. say the guy did, because he was he took out the sword and put it up next to him, and like he made it happen. Yeah. I mean, he hesitated, but that doesn't mean that you know he's like not responsible somehow. So when I put all those things together, I say. I don't know that there's actually a contradiction here. Yeah, and and I think in in the context of your your uh, reading of the Hebrew, it just says Paul took Saul took his sword, not his own sword. The the, the possessive indicates the sword could have been the armor bearer sword, as you just pointed out. What what also is tied to this is the statement that I found Saul, and then I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm. Well, you yeah. have to actually be standing there watching Saul die to do that and know that he's dead yeah. before you away the indicators of who he is. And why are you taking them? You've come to the, the one Saul's been trying to hunt down for a period of time and, and kill David, and you're saying, That's right. I brought to you. There's almost yeah, no, no, a, that, that's, yeah. an effort to say, I'm looking for a reward here because the guy that was trying to get you, I took care of. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that actually it rules out the possibility that this guy is just a scavenger who happens to be up on Mount Gilboa. Because I, I think mm-hmm. the image, right, is that Saul is there barely able to move. My interpretation of he's leaning on a spear is because he can't even, like, support himself up. It's like he's right. here just a crutch mm-hmm. at this point. He's riddled with arrows. Yeah. He's he's dying right then and there. And, and the, the Philistines are closing in. They're like, I mean, you know, it's like less than a minute yeah. away. Right. Um, And and so the thing is, there's no opportunity (laughs) for like, you know, this guy just to come in waltzing and be like, hey, look, they left the king's crown. No, no, not Mm -hmm. like not not at all. It says they're clearly when they show up, they they, they cut off the head and all the rest. So, I I mean, this isn't just this guy who got lucky. I think you're right. Like by having these tokens, it shows that he was actually right then and there. And and I think we got to really then in the end take it as he was uh, the guy. And when it says in Hebrew, you know, the sword, right? It's like mm-hmm. it, it was actually actually his. Um, okay, so just we're, we're almost out of time here. So just we, I think we got to turn to the, the bit uh, that was asked about at the end about the love. Okay, right. Um, mm-hmm. It is it's fascinating to think about the Amalekite thing, and I think there is a juxtaposition between David, who uh, spares an Amalekite, right, and actually uses the, the Amalekite to serve God's purposes, versus uh, Saul, who wrongly spares the Amalekites, which is why he died on Mount Gilboa, and ultimately why, ironically, an Amalekite kills him, right? Like, so I, I do think there is like some actually very poetic theological stuff sure. going on there. But uh, we, we got to look yeah. at this thing here that he says at the end, uh, okay, what's what's going on here? People have suggested it's like, you know, that there's actually some kind of eroticism here. What is what is the word here? Uh, you're, you've been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, mm-hmm. surpassing love of women. Yeah, and and this is if you look at it carefully. Uh, elsewhere, we're told that Jonathan and David shared the same spirit, and it specifically never uses the Hebrew word that is uh, basically a, a Hebrew verb for carnal knowledge. You can literally call it that. Uh, right. Here he's talking about the the affectionate emotional support of having the same spirit, being of the same mind, you know, 
it, it's it's like a blood brother is almost a better way to say it, I think. In the blood brother, that's a, that's a really that's a really striking way to put it, I think, because I, I mean, what I would want to say about that connection, like, because it doesn't even say that their spirits were united. It actually uses the word nefesh, which is the word for dying breath. I, I think yeah. the idea is that when David slayed Goliath, he saved Jonathan and Saul's lives because if he hadn't done that, they would have had to go down and face him and they would have died. And so when, yeah. when I think about that, that they have, they literally are sticking their necks out. That's another literal translation of nephish, sticking their neck mm-hmm. out for each other. I, I think the idea is that, hey, no one in this life, not, not even Mikal, risked her life in the same way that mm-hmm. that Jonathan would. And, and so I think when it says love, we're not talking about emotions. We're talking about actions, which gets back to like what sure. you were saying, the actions of the true Messiah who does more than just stick his neck out and risk his life for God's people, but willingly sacrifices it on in behalf of God's people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he gives. He gives what we cannot give for ourselves. Our lives wouldn't buy forgiveness. They would just be punishment. His death right. takes our guilt and our sin and then pays the full price and at the same time rescues us from that death, which is really the nefesh love we needed. The full That's right. pays the debt. Hey, amen. Amen. So so the, the love is really more an action word than something that's just uh, mere emotions here. And so we, we shouldn't impoverish the meaning uh, that David has. Well, brother, thank you so much. So many good things in this chapter, but I think we worked out a lot of uh, good questions here. Thank you. Look forward to thank having you. you on again real soon. Thank you. And God's blessings with you and our listeners. Still. Thank you, brother, and on you and your family as well. Everybody, Pastor Stephen Tice from Frona, Missouri, going on to Chapter 2 of Second Samuel. Tail then, and Pastor H.S. Espinosa. Peace. To Thy Strong Word, produced Senate Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.